Hey everyone, just a quick disclaimer that the original dates of Welcome to Key, New Hampshire are no longer happening because of the coronavirus, so the we will update you guys with the new dates as we go along with um, everything going on. Uh, just want to quickly uh, mention that to you and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back to to loud noises. No, I said I couldn't do it. I just I saved my brunch for this. I need my mimosas. Oh boy, I am a very very nervous Matthew Schufreiter. And uh, do you want to say what your name is? Peace. Her name is her name is Peace. Uh, no, that was Connor Brown, and Connor just left the room for some reason. I guess she didn't go before she was ready. Uh, what do I do? Uh, Keep going, Matt. Just Griffin, what do I do? Matt. Do you, you want to host you are with an, me? You are an actor, and the show must go on. Oh, no. Get like get going, man. Are you sure you don't want to join me? Um, are you going to support me? You're going to watch and support me? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. I, I don't guess. no Listen, you gotta like people aren't supposed to hear me on these things. Yeah, get so, out of here. Yeah. So like you, I I can't be on here for insurance purposes. Um, but you know what? You, I have complete faith that you will pull this out. Folks, we might be canceled halfway through this episode. Well, why, why don't you tell us who our guest is? Oh, I will. Uh, well, our guest today is Brian James Polek. He is a playwright and host of The Subtext. You can listen to that on all media platforms and on americatheatermagazine.com. Brian, his new play, or should I say one of his plays, Welcome to King, New Hampshire, is having its world premiere at Straw Dog Theater. Brian and I today talk about life as a playwright growing up in Keene and what he looks forward to when his play premieres. So, here we go. See? You did fine. You got this. Hi, Brian. Hi. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm glad to. Yeah. So, you have been, what, playwriting for how long now, you think? Uh, uh, I think it was probably about 2004. Five or six when I started to transition out of being an actor, uh, which is a whole long story in itself. Um, but I was part of a theater company at the time, and I was an actor at the theater, in the theater company. And we were doing a play that uh, – a production that needed a bunch of different people to contribute as writers. And, uh, and I was like, I want to do that. I want to mm-hmm. be one of the – so I went to the director, and I said, hey, can I write something? And uh, she said, sure. So I wrote a couple pieces for myself to perform. And that was really the beginning. And I think that was, I think that was about 2006 when I did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't until, you know, 2011 when I went to grad school. So it was a few years of not acting anymore and just yeah. focusing on writing and, and trying to figure it out, self, self-teach essentially. Um, before I was like, I, you know, I, I really want to do this. I really want to learn about this. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how they how to do the years math, but that's when it all started. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. But uh, your play, Welcome to King, New Hampshire, uh, it played a huge, it's based on your 
Based on some way of your life, you think, or uh, not based on my life, but definitely inspired by my hometown, Keene, New Hampshire, yeah, is my actual is my actual hometown. Uh, so there's a lot about my hometown that is real that mm-hmm. uh, is in the play, and there's a line at the very beginning of the play that says, um, "This is all made up, but it's all real." Mm-hmm. What inspired you for that line? Was that like the big? Was that your first idea for it, or? Well, the first idea was uh, Keene, New Hampshire is situated in southwestern New Hampshire, uh, near where the fictional Grover's Corners of our town is set. And uh, there are some landmarks that exist in our town that are real, like Mount Monadnock is Mm -hmm. our sort of like our local mountain that we all go hiking. And uh, and, uh, over the years... I've been ever so I you know I moved away to go to undergrad uh years ago in the 90s and I never lived my hometown again but I uh you know I go back and visit very regularly and uh I've followed the news of my hometown and over the years I just kept finding national news stories about Keene New Hampshire mm-hmm. like Stephen Colbert did a sh- on the Colbert Report did an, an episode that featured some things happening in Keene mm-hmm. John Oliver did uh, another thing, and then CNN would report things that are happening. So I would constantly see this little town of twenty five thousand people pop up on the news. And then in recent years, uh, the heroin and opioid epidemic was really mm. um, going bananas. And, and in New Hampshire, Keene became one of the places that was hardest hit. And I was reading an article that said that described Keene as the. Uh, like the heroin death capital of New Hampshire. Yeah. And that really just like, it killed me. And what it had me saying for the first time in my life was back when I was a kid, right? So Mm -hmm. we grow up hearing our parents and grandparents talk about like back in my day. And I said that for the first time in my life. And I was (laughs) like, first I was like, oh man, I'm getting old. (laughs) But then I was like, oh, everybody comes to a point where they start to say that. Yeah. And I started to track it back. Like, well, back in my time, which was like the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, mm-hmm. my, my sort of like coming of age in keen keen was a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then my parents could say, well, back in my day, which was, you know, 30, 40 years earlier, mm-hmm. keen was like this. And then I sort of started to track it back in time and imagine what generations would say. And what I did was I connect. I started to think backwards in time, and then I said, "Oh, you could do this all the way back to 1901 when Act yeah. One of our town was set. Like this is what the small New Hampshire town was like." And uh, I decided in that moment I want to write. I want to write a play about my hometown. Um, and then I, what I do is I very intentionally connect it to Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Yeah. So there's a there's a three act structure and there's a passage of time in each of the three acts and then there's a central narrator um, taking us through the story. And then I use these elements of Keen that make it to national news as sort of touchstones in the in the story. Mm-hmm. Is Our Town, I'm going to assume, your favorite play or one of yours? You know, I would say, yeah, definitely it is. Uh, it, it, I will go see any production of it, even if it's a high school production of it, and I will cry during Act 3 every single time. I have such a, a strong sense of nostalgia mm-hmm. and uh, a very strong emotional connection to it. Uh, I really, I love it. I really mm-hmm. do love it. Uh, and there's a hokiness to it as yeah. well. 
And uh, yeah, and I kind of, I kind of like that too. I mean, that's how I feel like my favorite play I've done and seen is It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, also yeah, just yeah, yeah. because like that character of George Bailey, I just see so much of my grandfather when he was sure. around. Because yeah. He was an everyman, but he also just cared for everyone. Yeah. And so any audition I see for that show, I'm at. Right. Or I'm seeing, because there's, like you said, there's a hokiness to it. Like, yeah. you don't see the Buffalo Gals all the time or something. But yeah, it's a charm about it. Right. But there's also a tone that uh, I really connect to. And there's a, it's a, it's like a melancholy mm-hmm. sadness. You know, to, and I think that sort of pervades a lot of the stuff that I write. Mm-hmm. So I connect to sadness uh, immediately. Um, and, uh, and that's why I think I will, I will cry during act three because it's so, it's so deeply moving to me. Uh, and I think, you know, I, what I've been saying with, with comparing my play to our town, not that there is a comparison, but contrasting it, I guess I should say is that I've always found our town. The reason why our town is, um, still thriving today. Like you will see a hundred productions, you know, every year all over the country. Uh, I think it's because people do connect to it emotionally. And they, and I think it, it, it shows us a blueprint for, um, being a human Mm -hmm. in a sort of general sense. And that's how I've always seen that play. Like, this is what it's like to be a human Mm -hmm. in generally speaking. And uh, and then I set out to write my play, and I said uh, to myself that Thornton Wilder mastered that. Mm-hmm. He mastered this general humanity uh, in small-town America through a small town in New Hampshire, so I'm not going to do that. I'm writing very specifically about today. Mm-hmm. What is it like to be a human being in the moment we're living in currently? Uh, and so I focused very specifically on problems that we're dealing with today, like the opioid crisis and and guns and things does like that. Does it take um, – I was researching the play. Does it truth to take place in 2016 or somewhere around that? I wrote the first draft in 2016. Okay. Uh, but we're premiering it here in 2020. Yeah. So uh, as I've been chasing a production of it, I've been updating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the there are – sort of references to uh, the MAGA Make America Great Again movement, uh, which didn't really exist that much when I first wrote it. Like, it wasn't really pervading our consciousness. Mm -hmm. I wrote it literally four years ago as we speak. I was probably in the middle of writing Act 2 on this day four years ago. Um, Well, happy anniversary. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I went back to my my, uh, social media memories and... 2016 February is when I wrote this. Oh, wow. I wrote this play, but um, it need so it exists. It's a it's a it's a um, a response to our town, but it's also a response to the sort of like Trumpian world in which we're mm-hmm. we're trying to wade through at the moment. Do you know what the politics side of King was like? Do you remember? Do you think it's changed at all? Uh, well. It's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot over the years. What it means to be from New Hampshire is a question that I ask myself a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, and we just, you know, we're, we're recording this in February, and the um, the election just happened, the primary election just yeah. happened in New Hampshire uh, not that long ago. And I remember growing up that primary day in New Hampshire was like, Ridiculous! Like really? so, like politicians are rolling through town constantly. When I was growing up, I'm 46 now, so my first 
election was as an 18 year old was 1992. And that's the year I graduated from high school Mm -hmm. and every candidate rolled through town. Uh, Bill Clinton came to my high school and spoke to a small group of us. So I met, I met Bill Clinton in 1992, (laughs) Uh, by the way, hated him. Oh, good. So I was like, I was Jerry Brown all the way. (laughs) Jerry Brown was kind of the Barry, the the Barry, the Bernie Sanders of the, uh, of that Mm -hmm. election. And I was so like, go Jerry Brown. That's awesome. Um, and I've worked on his campaign in, locally in my in my hometown. Um, but anyway, the politics of New Hampshire are really weird. Like, uh, there's a very strong and deep libertarian streak mm-hmm. in New Hampshire. Uh, the line of liberal and conservative isn't uh, drawn socially in the way that it is in other areas of the country. Yeah. You know, there's a there's this, there's a stronger sense of get out of my yard and stop taxing me. And, and if you want to get married and you, and you are, uh, LGBTQ plus, then fine. We don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want, I want my guns, but I'm also not going to, uh, march on the streets yeah. about it. Like it's sort of like keep to ourselves that could, because it's, it's, it's born out of this sort of like, puritanical New England uh, nature, which goes back to, you know, the 1600s when people first arrived. People were very, you know, just sort of buttoned up um, and keep to themselves kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, for the most part, it is it is um, this weird combination of liberal and conservative. Like, people, people grow... People, I guess, in my generation... It would be common to hear us say to each other uh, naively, I'll add, um, I am socially liberal, mm-hmm. but I am fiscally conservative. Mm. Uh, and now, I, as an adult, I recognize that these two things are uh, in direct opposition to each other. Uh, but that's a feeling yeah. that I know I had as a as coming of age in New Hampshire. And I think this sort of idea um, pervades the state. Yeah. But I will say there is a, a little bit of a bunker libertarian mentality where there are people who are like, stay off my land and just leave me alone. And I don't care what happens in the outside world. Yeah. Do you, would you want to go back to King a little closer to the actual election? I don't know. Uh, you know, I follow my hometown paper, the Keen Sentinel, and I follow the news and I watch, uh, you know who's rolling through town, and mm-hmm. and I don't know. I've I've become a little bit more uh, not afraid of, but uninterested in crowds. Yeah, and they draw crowds now. Like thousands of people show up for these things, and uh, I don't know if I'd be really interested. I like my hometown, and yeah. I will go back whenever I can. I love it there. Uh, there's a version of me that could go back and live there at some point. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but. Uh, or young me would be like, I'm gone and I'm gone for good and I'm never coming back except for, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah. Uh, but now I'm like, oh, the quiet, quieter New England life. Mm-hmm. I could go for that. Do you still have family who lives in there? My family's kind of scattered. I have more friends that, that okay. still live there than I do family. My parents summer in that, in that area yeah. and then winter in the south, which is really common for people in New England okay. called snowbirds. Uh, my parents are now snowbirds. Uh, so I don't have a lot of family that are there all year round, but I have a lot of friends in, in 
Keene and uh, in the Boston area. Okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of Keene, let's talk about Will O'Brien. Right, uh, right. Obviously, yeah. you grew up in Keene. Um, was it tr- you were an athlete for a while, right? Did you start as an yeah, athlete? Yeah, I mean... I- it's funny to call to refer to myself as an athlete because I I played sports mm-hmm. and I was okay. Okay. I don't really know. Like I feel, it feels weird to say I'm an athlete. Yeah. Or I was an athlete, but athletics is what I cared about. I was named after football players. Yeah. So, um, oh, remind me of the athlete. Uh, well, Brian after Brian Piccolo. Yeah. Who's a famous uh, Chicago Bears player that died of Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was I think he was like 28 or 29. Mm-hmm years old uh and they made a movie called brian's song about it which by the way i was in middle school uh which we call junior high school uh i've been told in the midwest that you call it middle school yeah but anyway i was in junior <laughs> high school and uh, my english teacher played brian's song uh for class one day and i saw and i was really into football at the time so i was it was really cool to see these football like a movie about football players and uh, and Lando Calrissian was the uh, Billy D. Williams played Gale Sayers uh, in the movie, and uh, and I and I and it was like moving and mm-hmm. sad, but it was about football players, so it was cool. Pretty tough, yeah. So I went home and I told my mom about about this, and she said, "Oh, that's who you're named after," and it blew my mind. And then I and then I started to feel this sense of dread, like, "Oh, did I inherit like?" What happened to him is gonna, I'm going to die of Hodgkin's. So I'm like 13, 12 or 13 years old, and I'm starting to think, okay, at some point I get Hodgkin's. That's just because I'm, I'm named after this person that got it. It was really stupid, but uh, yeah. But my, my father uh, was a big football fan when mm. I was born and named me Brian, and James is after uh, a quarterback named Jim Plunkett. Mm. Uh, who was playing for the Patriots at the time, uh, and uh, that was sort of so. I was I was destined to become a football player, mm-hmm. which I became in, in junior high school and played through high school. And I was on the track team. I was a bad pole vaulter oh. on the track team, mm-hmm. and I threw the discus uh, a little bit. But so anyway, yeah. So that's where I really—that's what my focus was as a kid was playing sports. Mm-hmm. Did you get that from your parents at all? Did your dad play sports or mom did? I don't really know. My parents divorced when I was eight years old, mm. and I had some visitation with my father up until about age ten, mm-hmm. and never saw him again. Really? Uh, but I have—I have like three or four. Like I literally have three or four memories that I can pull. Of, of my father. Mm-hmm. And one of them is him teaching me how to catch a football on the beach. And he was showing me how to uh, catch it over my shoulder. So I'm running down the beach and he would throw it and he wouldn't let me stop and turn around and face him. I'd have to find the ball over my head and catch it into my hands. And that's one of my, one of my very few memories of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he wasn't a, an athlete as far as I know. I don't really know a lot about his his past, but I have learned recently. Um, I have a distant cousin in Poland who did some genealogy research mm-hmm. and found me through her research. Oh, very cool! Yeah, her name's her name's uh, Magda, and she lives in Poland. and And she said, uh, "Are you the Brian?" Like she Facebook uh, messaged me a few years ago and said, "Are you the Brian of so and so?" Yeah, because my my grandfather on my father's side had recently passed away, and she found the obituary which I'm named in. And so she was contacting people in the obituary. So anyway, Magda learned that um, 
one of our mutual uncles was a uh, college football player and won the national championship yeah. uh, for like Clemson or some some big college back okay. in back in the forties or fifties or something, and then he went on to become a football coach for his whole life mm-hmm. in New England. And I never knew I never knew this person at all. Um, so it wasn't a story that I knew as a as a child. Nobody mm-hmm. really nobody really talked much. Like we weren't a big talking family on either side, my mm-hmm. mom's side or my dad's side. Any reason or just we're just I don't know. Like it seemed normal, but yeah. but uh, we weren't big storytellers. Uh, we aren't f- a family of uh, traditions mm-hmm. that we hand down. Like I remember spending holiday after holiday, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, around a table where there might be some political arguments going on. Um, but that was the only consistent thing that would happen from year to year mm-hmm. was some some political conversation, and I would be like over on the kitty table. Um, but there was no tr- like I can't uh, you know I'm planning a wedding for August of this year, and we're thinking about what family traditions are, and I'm like there are on my side. No, <laughs> I don't have any. I just thought yeah, we, yeah. We just we just weren't big talkers, and we still really we don't talk a lot to this day. Hmm. Would do you have interest in learning more about your father right now? Well, yeah. I uh, when. So, like I mentioned earlier, I, I started grad school in 2011, mm. and I was in my 30s at that point. And I've, I spent these years growing up, like, screw that guy. Like, I went through the whole, this, like, several cycles of, like, of uh, how I felt about him. Mm. And I, I spent many years just being like, this person could have given a shit about me and what I was up to. I played football for years, mm-hmm. and part of it was because of him. And uh, he wasn't there, and he didn't care. Yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> so when I was getting into my thirties, I was, you know, I was, my adult brain was finishing its right. forming, and I, and uh, and I was like, you know what? When I finish grad school, I'm gonna find him, and because I know this is a thing that's gonna be hanging over me for my entire life. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's the summer of 2011, and then. Uh, I learned that my father passes away mm-hmm. in Florida. I didn't know that's where he was living. Yeah. I just knew in three years, I'm going to focus on grad school for three years. When that's over, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to find him and I'm going to go see him and we're going to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And then I find out that um, he died. Mm-hmm. And it was the weirdest feeling because when you lose a parent, that like it creates this big hole. But I lost a parent I didn't know. And I mm-hmm. lost a parent who wasn't part of my life. And I didn't know how to feel. And I didn't know how to mourn. Uh, and and I did, it was like, it was a feeling and it was information I just didn't know what to do with. Yeah. So uh, a couple years later, uh, I had a conversation with my, my father. I, my, I learned my father remarried mm-hmm. and um, had a stepson. Uh, who was married to a woman who reached out to me on on Facebook. And I met with her. I went back to New England. She lived in Massachusetts, and I sat down with her. And uh, she knew my father better than I did. Hmm. So I got to have a conversation with her about him, and that was the cl- closest I've gotten to him. I have not yet met his, uh, his wife, mm-hmm. um, and I haven't met... I haven't met this woman's husband yet, and I hope to one day. Yeah. 
uh, on one of my trips back to New England. But I, yeah, I learned more about my own father from this person who was like several degrees of separation away from him. But she had meals with him, and she had memories of holidays with him, and mm-hmm. and things like that. And um, it was the weird, it was a really weird experience to talk to her and learn about somebody who's supposed to be like a huge part yeah. of my life. And so my father's influence on my life was um, all kind of accidental. Like mm-hmm. I played football because of this idea that I it was a thing, it was a birthright, and in my name, you know, my name's coming from football players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was all like self-generated motivation. Like I was essentially trying to impress a ghost, like somebody mm-hmm. who's just not there. And uh, yeah, so yeah. My dad had six other brothers, yeah, um, and so I see them quite a lot. And I saw my grandparents till I was in college. I never met my mom's side. Well, oh, yeah, I, I met my mom's sisters, yeah. But I, my her mom was around maybe my first two years of life. Uh-huh. I never met her dad, yeah. And part of me still thinks about like what would that have been like? What would have been like to know them? Because I don't, like you, I don't really know much about them. Yeah. I knew my mom grew up in Evanston with her sisters in mm-hmm. like a one-bedroom apartment. So they would sleep in the living room. But I, that's all I really meant. I mean, I saw her mom on video like when my mom got married to my right. dad. But, yeah, sometimes I just think, I'm like, who are these people? Where did my mom get this And, and, and you're going to keep thinking that yeah. until you finally get some information. Yeah, and I... You know, here and there, I asked my mom, you know, growing up, we were, like, I'm from Evanston, my dad's from Evanston, my mom's from Evanston. Yeah. Um, I grew up there for the first couple years of my life, so that's, like, another home for me whenever I go back, and, you know, you see, like, the Hardigan's ice cream, or uh-huh. Northwestern, or um, other schools and all that, so it's, it's like, a little bit of history, and I, um, you've been to Evanston, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know this hardware store that sells, like, the pasta sauce? No. Yeah, it's like some Ace Hardware. A hardware store that sells pasta sauce. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. Like, <laughs> we went there like, a couple years ago for like a summer, uh, and, like a day in the summer with the whole family, and my dad's like, we're going to go to the hardware store, and I'm like, get these really good pasta sauce. And my mom's like, that's for dinner. And we get the, and it was really good pasta sauce. That's hilarious. Do they uh, still do this today? Oh, we haven't done it in a while, but last summer. I now I, want to look this up and find yeah, out. Yeah, like last summer I drove, I was doing a show at the time at the Piven, and uh, I was like an hour early for rehearsal, so I'm like, I'm gonna go to this right. hardware store. Yeah. And it's like three different hardware stores. Yeah. I can't remember the damn name of the place. Finally found the place and they sold out. That's funny. When I was growing up, uh, uh, I was born in Nashua, New Hampshire. Okay. Uh, and my whole, both of sides of my family come from Nashua. And I have lots of childhood memories of, of Nashua, which is much bigger than than Keene, mm-hmm. uh, but there was this bakery called Crosby's that my grand, my mom's dad, my grandfather would take me to whenever I was staying with them on the weekends, so I just remember Crosby's Donuts, Crosby's Donuts, Crosby's Donuts, and um, and I went back as an adult, mm-hmm. you know, years and years later, and it's still there, and I go, and I was so, like, excited, I yeah. walked in, and I was like, I'm here, I'm at Crosby's Donuts again. And and uh, the man behind the counter was like, "How may I help you?" And I, I had this like level of enthusiasm he's probably never seen yeah. by anybody just walking in this just random mom and pop bakery. And I said, "I'm just so excited to be here. I used to come here as a kid." <laughs> and he said, "Great. What can I get you?" Like, <laughs> could not have cared. Yeah. 
Uh, we were in, we did a, a recording a couple weeks ago at the Evanston Library, mm-hmm. and um, I go to the front te- uh, checkout desk to reserve our room, and this lady was like, are you a shoe writer? And I'm like, yes, I, was, I am. And they said, uh, we know Jack, that was my grandfather. Yeah. And they, she would just go on, and I'm like, oh, he was such a lovely man. And, and I'm like, oh, my God, who are you, first of all? Right, right. Second of all, I go into my room. Third of all, thank you right. for saying yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> I think just going back to where you come from really just changes you as a person, like, inside and out. It's like when you when I see my family, I go see my uncles and their kids for Thanksgiving, and part of me has to change just because they're so used to seeing a different side of me growing up, like a bit more quieter, a bit more, I don't want to say normal, maybe more traditional mm-hmm. how I talk, um, as opposed to how I talk and behave with my friends or sometimes even my family Um, when you go back to New Hampshire or when you see your family does a part of you change a little bit you think? Yeah I think so What do you think? I don't think I'm conscious of it but now that you're asking the question I think I think so I think there was um, a part of me that was I think I'm funnier around my family Mm -hmm. I think I try harder to be funnier Mm -hmm. uh, to make people laugh and uh and to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And maybe it might be a defense mechanism for, like, family tension. But I remember um, starting to tap into this as a, as a child, you know, when my, when my mom was a single mom raising my older sister and I. Uh, and that could not have been easy for her. Mm-hmm. But I remember trying to make my, my sister and my mom laugh at, like, the, the dinner table, yeah. you know. And... Uh, she later remarried and then had two kids, so I had two little sisters around who I'm much older than. Uh, I'm 15 years and 13 years older than them. So as they were getting older, I was an adult, and then I had an audience. Mm. Um, and I would try to make the kids laugh, and I would always try to make my mother laugh. So I think um, I tap into a dry uh, humor more when I'm home. Mm. Um than I do when I'm in my regular life. Like, I don't think I'm funny with friends mm-hmm. right now uh, in my, at this point in my You're life. You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think I make people laugh at home. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, And you said you had siblings. Are you the oldest by far? I have or? a sister who's two years older. Okay. And then I have two sisters um, who are um, 15 and 13 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do they do anything arts-related? Do they even do sports or...? No, I mean, my my older sister was, uh, she played flute mm-hmm. when we were growing up, so flute was her version of football mm-hmm. uh, for me. And then my younger sisters, I think, uh, they played some sports growing up, like, like soccer, uh, and one of my younger sisters... Uh, was always very active in like snow sports, like like mm-hmm. snowboarding and that and that kind of thing, and um, and some surfing. And how do they feel about when they when you tell them, "Oh, I'm a playwright. Why do you stuff with theater? Are they okay with that? Were they proud of that? There is such I th- I they used to see me perform improv when mm-hmm. I was first starting to act, and I think that that was a part of my life that they could really understand and connect with because it was like they could see me do it and it was tangible Mm -hmm. um and you know humor is kind of there's a universality to it yeah um 
especially like improv is so accessible, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's very accessible and it's, it's, it's engaging with an audience and that kind of thing. And so when they saw me do that, I think that was, that was very, that was my first foray out of athletics and into something different. Yeah. Um, and they didn't see me play football a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they would see me perform. And I think that that was a thing that they were like, oh, my brother is an actor. My brother does improv. I've seen him do it. Mm-hmm. Or my mom would say the same thing. My son does this thing, and I've seen him do it. Um, I started to write, and I transitioned into writing a few years later. And I don't think I've had a single conversation with anybody about it ever in my really? family. Yeah. What it's, do you think? I think it's... I think it's uh, more mysterious, okay. a little bit more, uh, a little bit less accessible. Okay. Uh, and I'm writing plays. If I was writing novels mm-hmm. or short stories, I think maybe that's something. Okay, everybody grows up reading these things. Yeah. Not everybody grows up studying drama or reading plays. Mm-hmm. Like just the way a play looks like on a page is weird and mm-hmm. intimidating. If it's not something that it's not part of your world, for sure. Um. It wasn't until I wrote Welcome to Keene, New Hampshire that I even had the shortest conversation about something I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it's not something that comes up. I don't get it. Nobody asks me what I'm writing. Mm. I've never once heard, what are you, what are you what, up to now? What are you writing? Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, like, I'm the oldest of four, and I'm the only one who does something with the arts. Yeah. And do they ask you, do, they, do you talk about it at home? To a point. Like, my, I have a little middle brother who's about to graduate high school in a couple yeah. months and, he, and when my parents are like what do you want to do and he's like well I want to make money I'm like Matt over here it's <laughs> so true like, yeah. I'm like well that hurts but you're not yeah, wrong right. like my sister um, she's a junior in Whitewater and she's studying uh, special ed Yeah, and so she's going to probably be the one who's going to have a full time job right, right. Uh, unlike me when I'm going to graduate college in a couple months and be like well what the hell am I mm-hmm. going to do mm-hmm. um, so as the older brother, I usually thought, like, all right, well, I have to be, like, the leader or show them this is how you do it. And then that was before I went to Columbia and went to an art school. And mm-hmm. like, oh, no, you can kind of do whatever you want. Right. No one really cares as long as you have a job, as my parents would say. Right. As long as you're out of the house by 25. Yeah. Like yeah. That. Uh, I do want to transition, though. So where did you go to school for your undergrad? I went to Marymount University, which is in Arlington, Virginia. Okay. And, uh, and it's a Catholic college. Oh. And I'm not particularly Catholic, uh, I didn't really know it was Catholic. All I knew was I wanted to go to college and I wanted to leave New Hampshire. And, uh, and I don't know if you had this when you were, either one of you had this when you were in school, but we had a college fair. Mm-hmm. And so they bust a bunch of us to a local college gymnasium and like every college in America was represented there. Mm-hmm. And you just walk around and collect all these brochures. Oh, and I had this huge stack of brochures I brought and left it in my room on the floor. And uh, I wasn't super engaged with the whole process of going to college. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just I knew it was a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really connected to how you make it happen, but I also wasn't worried about it yeah. in a way that a lot of my friends were really thinking a lot about it. You know, I took some SATs, and I did okay with the SATs. And, but I remember this one time early very beginning of my senior year of high school and my mother was like so have you made up your mind about school mm-hmm. and like I hadn't really thought about it and uh and so I went through that stack mm-hmm. that I'd been sitting there for a few weeks 
And, uh, and what I decided to do was, okay, I want to find a college that is outside of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. I want it to be small Mm -hmm. because I know that I know myself and I will drown in a big college. And, uh, and so I was like small college outside of New Hampshire in or near a city. Like that was really important to me growing up in the woods of, of New Hampshire. And I go through my entire stack and, Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia was literally the only <laughs> one that fit that description. Yeah. So I didn't do any research. I didn't visit the school at all. I just applied for it. And my mother said I could go to this school if, uh, but I had to apply to the University of New Hampshire mm-hmm. and I had to apply to Keene State College, which was our local town school. Uh, and, uh, and if Marymount gave me uh, enough money mm-hmm. that it kind of made it a wash, yeah. like cost wise, then I could go there. And they did. That's awesome. And so I did. <laughs> and then a couple weeks before I was leaving to go to school, I get the student handbook in the mail. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, cool. Student handbook for my new college that, I'm gonna, that I've never seen and I've never visited. And I'm flipping through it. And, uh, and there had, had, had like, like the main logo had a cross on it. Okay. But that like obli- like oblivious yeah, to nothing me. to you. <laughs> and so I'm like flipping through it, flipping through it, and it says the president's name. The president of the of the college had an S R before their name. And I was like, What does that mean, sir? Is that, are they British? <laughs> and my mother said, No, that's sister. Oh. And I said, Sister? <laughs> the president of my college is a nun? <laughs> and she said, Yeah. And I was like, this is a Catholic college? <laughs> My mother's like, yeah, you idiot. You didn't know that? I'm like, no, I had no idea. She, she's like, I knew that. I'm like, why did you tell me? She's like, it's so obvious. It's named Marymount the cross. University. There's a cross on the logo. How do you not know this? And I just, I had absolutely no clue. Oh, that's awesome. And the first time I saw the school was the day I moved in. But but it was like it's so connected to the the student I was at the time. Like I had I was not uh, I was smart enough to get through things. Yeah. But I was not eager to learn, and I didn't have any clue. So I get to college and I'm not an athlete anymore because yeah. I'm not playing in sports. Um, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I went through four years of undergrad just sort of like I, I majored in philosophy mm-hmm. because it literally because it sounded cool. Yeah. And I was very interested in having in, in, like establishing an identity for myself. So I majored in philosophy and I was one of two majors in my year. Okay. So there wasn't like a big rich department for philosophy. So I took classes all over the place yeah. and I graduated barely but I got a you know I got a bachelor's degree and I got a I got a job but I did not get an education that didn't do you think philosophy helped you in any way even now you think or I I mean I think sort of like uh indirectly yeah like I think I developed a strong ability to craft an argument Mm. uh I think especially early on uh in my adult life I would be able to take either side of an argument mm-hmm. and argue that side effectively. And I think that comes out of, out of philosophy. But the big, my big takeaway from studying philosophy was really that philosophers are geniuses and horrible communicators. Oh. And that was what upset me so much was like, these people are so smart, but they cannot communicate their points of view mm-hmm. 
for people to understand. They're communicating their points of view for each for their peers to understand who are way up here and here I am way down here mm-hmm. and I'm eager to learn what Immanuel Kant is trying to say, but I can't understand it. Oh sorry, sorry that was terrible. That that was from the improv <laughs> days, right? <laughs> oh uh, I'm yeah. gonna yes and that was terrible. No, no I'm not. I only, only applied to three schools. Yeah. And Columbia was one of them. Monmouth was one of them. And I think Concordia was one of them. Monmouth, New Jersey. Uh, no, Monmouth, Illinois. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is like mm, maybe four hours west Okay, yeah, yeah. I only did it because my, I had a teacher at high school who was like, oh, yeah, this is a great school. Right, yeah. And I, was, and I went to him like, eh, you know, it's fine. Yeah. And then I, was, and then I got declined by Concordia and then... Was he a mom at this? And I was like, well, I like the city. Yeah. I like Ferris Bueller. Right. So yeah. that's when I say <laughs> yes. Um, and then you, so after, what was your first job after you got an undergrad? My first, so, so uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people, not everybody, this probably speaks to my privilege, but uh, I got some money from people when I graduated high school. Like mm-hmm. people, or no, college, sorry, college, like grandparents and aunts and uncles yeah. like, wrote me some checks. And so the the pressure to get a job immediately after graduation yes. was kind of low yeah. because I had cash to pay. Oh. I was living in an apartment with some friends, and I had very, very low rent. I wasn't thinking about the future. But after a few months, I was like, oh, no. Like, this money is only going to last me a few more months. I actually need to get a job. This vacation, this post-graduation vacation needs to end. And so I was just looking for jobs all over the place, and I ended up um, – moving to uh, North Carolina to be a residence hall director at a small Baptist college called Wingate University. Okay. So I was a, I was a residence hall director and a volunteer coordinator. And I was 22 years old, uh, not that much older than the students. Yeah. And I look young for my age, and I've always looked younger than I am. So at 22, I looked about, you know, 15. Yeah. But I'm in now for the first time in a position of like authority, and I ran a dorm that had most of the football team in it, and they're all like twice my size. They all look way older than me, and I need to be telling them what to do. And it was like <laughs> it was laughable. It was laughable, and I only lasted one school year, and then I moved back to Washington D.C., where which is where all of my friends were, and I got a job as a research assistant. Um, just like getting information around DC, like going to the Supreme Court and going to the Library of Congress and um, that kind of thing, and it was such a cool job. And it's sort of like it connected me to my the trajectory of my professional life mm. for the first for my twenties, essentially. So I moved, I left DC and moved to Boston and got a job at a company as like kind of a corporate paralegal, and uh, did that for several years while I was doing improv and starting a theater company and that kind of thing on the side. And you said you started a theater company. Um, what was this company, and did that have something to do with your acting? Did you want to act with this company, or did you just want to run a company? Well, it, it, uh, when I was doing improv, I, my whole sort of like, I worked for the Improv Asylum in Boston, which is a, um, now a well-known improv theater. Uh, they've been around over 20 years, and uh, I, was on, I, I took classes there because I wanted to... I needed a hobby because yeah. I wasn't an athlete. Now I'm in my 20s. I'm not an athlete. What am I going to do sure. after work for the rest of my life? So I started taking um, acting classes, and then I ended up taking improv classes at the Improv Asylum. Yeah. And I went through their whole system, six levels, graduate from their program, and then audition for their touring company, which is like their B team. 
and uh, got cast. Mm-hmm. And I was I was on in this company for a couple of years, and it was there where I met like my circle of friends. Mm-hmm. And you spend all this time with them, traveling with them, and doing shows and rehearsals with them. And they were like my BFFs. Um, and that lasted a couple of years, and I left because I was going to be fired from my from the job because they I think they wanted more turnover yeah so I think the theater the people that ran the theater and I have no shade on them at all uh really uh they wanted to create some turnover because they I think they wanted a cast that was much more adept at musical improv which I'm not I can't sing I can't hold a note Mm -hmm. uh and so they were making people re-audition for their roles and I was like okay I I get it I'm gone yeah uh, but a friend of mine who worked there, uh, who who did like tech for the for the improv theater, was a theater director. Like he was a theater person at heart, not an improv person. And a couple years later, he and his wife um, wanted to start a theater company, and they reached out to me to be part of it because he his name was Luke Dennis and his wife was Sally Dennis. Um, Luke knew me as an improv actor and he liked me and we got along really well. I also had a full time like business corporate job. Okay. And so their their pitch to me was, Brian, you have a day job. You can be the managing director. Like the connection was, you know business because <laughs> because you work in an office. You know things. Yeah, it was totally like that <laughs> because Luke was a PhD student. Sally was a, a school teacher. Brian's a business person. And I was like, fine. I just, like I was excited to be asked and to be part of something. So we started... Uh, they had they they had already started to establish this company called Alarm Clock Theater Company, mm-hmm. and then um, we kind of made it official, um, got a five hundred one c three and all that kind of thing, which was part of my job as the managing director <laughs> to do. And I did, but I, so I was an actor, um, and Luke was a director. Sally was an actor. I was an actor, mm-hmm. um, and we had we you know we created a company and we had, we invited some more people and we just did what theater companies do and we produced some plays and I was acting in a couple of them. Uh, And, but what was happening to me was I was in a play doing my like rehearsed lines that I had memorized and all the blocking, doing the things you're supposed to do as an actor. But on the other side of my brain where the acting doesn't happen, there was this line of dialogue where I'm saying, I don't know what this play is actually about. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who who this character is. Uh, I should not be here doing this work. Mm. And it would be constant. Like I'm in the middle of a scene, and this is this dialogue is happening inside my head. And I I just I was like I do not belong on the stage. I should not be here. Mm-hmm. Somebody else should be doing this, not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really I think comes down to me never having studied theater never studying text analysis, yeah. not knowing how to read a play, um, not going to see a lot of theater either. Like I was, mm-hmm. I, I went improv a hundred percent to nothing to now I'm doing theater and never, I never took a theater class, theater mm-hmm. history, never read Shakespeare, Chekhov, none of it. Mm-hmm. I, I've, and I've said this on my podcast a few times. Uh, I literally thought in this time period, play all the plays were already written plays weren't still being written like I did that's what <laughs> I did not know that people still wrote plays I oh, just, yeah. I thought were, he's still alive he's upstairs right now. I thought they were I thought all the plays that were done in the world were already written <laughs> I was so dumb 
Um, so uh, that's when I started to think I shouldn't be an actor and I need to, I need to start doing something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I started to write. Yeah. So you were doing improv for a while. You had a company. And then what did you move next, right? Was that yeah, when you well, teaching, I, 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 I met... I met somebody who was a writer and they really inspired me to focus on being a writer. Um, and then we got married and this whole time period, I had the succession of jobs that I was good at and hated Mm -hmm. and I was getting better and better at the professional world. And, uh, it was making me more and more miserable. At one point I spent two years working as a consultant for a really prestigious, company Mm -hmm. that is hard to get into and I somehow backed my way into this company and I was like a suit wearing traveling person consulting for fortune 500 companies it was crazy and I was miserable doing it Mm -hmm. um and and so um I was so I got another job where there was like no travel and and I was still miserable because Mm -hmm. I was not doing anything I I cared about and I just wanted to do writing in the arts and and I just didn't know how to do that so I got married at the time and we decided uh let's move to Los Angeles and become writing partners Mm. and shortly after getting to LA I got a job at a theater company um called Boston Court Pasadena and I was hired as like a company manager house manager front of house kind of stuff and it was part-time and this is when my love of theater actually took root. Yeah. Uh, I started to work there full time as a marketing um, and uh, development manager. And the company just really inspired me. It was small enough. It, was a, it had a full-time staff and I was full-time employed and I had benefits. Um, but the company was small enough where I got to see the entire theater process done really really well and they were doing world premieres all this new work um and the best theatrical design elements but scrunched down into a 99 seat theater that's cool and it was amazing and inspiring and the the longer i was there the less i cared about this idea of film and television yeah in la and um my wife at the time and I stopped being writing partners and um, she focused on her own career and I started to focus on myself and then decided, uh, well, what really happened was the theater where I was working did a production of Luis Alfaro's Oedipus El Rey, mm-hmm. um, which is an adaptation of Oedipus Rex yeah. uh, set in the barrio of Los Angeles. And I met Luis and the and I saw his play and I saw his process and I saw him close up and I was so moved and inspired by him that I said I want to study with this person mm-hmm. and he teaches at USC and I had a conversation um, at home and said uh, I want to go to grad school and they were like fine you can go to grad school the conversation was basically like you can go we decided together that I can go if um, I still make an income and we don't leave Los Angeles. So I said, it's USC or bust. So I applied to USC and and only USC and then um, hustled my way in because I like, I did everything I could to get myself in. I talked to every decision maker I could connect with Mm -hmm. and said, how do I position myself best to get in? And then eventually I got in and I got to learn uh, from Luis 
And uh, by the time I got there, I was totally 100% in on theater mm-hmm. uh, and not really caring that much about film and television anymore. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that USC has this amazing film school and I yeah. took a bunch of classes there and really learned a lot about um, screenwriting, yeah. which I probably am better at. Mm-hmm. I probably am more adept at being a screenwriter than I am a playwright. How come? What do you think? The structure. Mm-hmm. The rules of engagement are so clear. The structure is so clear. I I completely grasp it in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I operate really well with, with structure. Mm-hmm. Theater, plays, do not... You have to create your own. You have to yeah. apply your... You start scratch. Yeah. Uh, and that's harder for me. But much like working in the corporate world that I didn't care about, that's how I feel about screenwriting. I think I'm good at it. I just don't really care about it. So I'm not, I'm not willing to dedicate myself to it. So eventually uh, uh, I got divorced and um, was no longer tied to Los Angeles. And all I, want, all I wanted was to be in theater. My plays weren't really connecting with the, with the community in Los Angeles. I knew everybody in that theater community. And have a lot of friends there, and they were really kind of generous with me. But I wasn't getting plays produced, yeah. so I was like, I want to leave LA. I've been, I was there for about ten years, and uh, I want to go someplace where I can just be part of a theater community and work on plays. And settled on Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this when when you were in Los Angeles? Was this when um, you were teaching? I was teaching in grad school. Teaching in grad school, yeah. Okay. Uh, because I, there's a story I heard of um, your play Tales from Ten City yeah. was being a workshop as yeah. a kind of class. Yeah, um, was that being done by students? Yeah. So, so in my in my grad program, I'm not sure what they do these days, but back when I was there, in your second, it's a three year program, and in your second year, you do a workshop production with undergrad actors and undergrad design teams, and I had seen many times uh, plays and maybe you yourself have, have had to do this where as a young actor, you have to age yourself up for the, for the middle-aged person or the older person. Mm -hmm. And I always feel like sort of cognitive dissonance when I see that, like it just doesn't feel right to me. So I decided to write a play specifically for young actors to perform. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I wrote this play called tales from tent city uh, which is a you know, an ensemble cast of teenage runaways, basically, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's the play I ended up workshopping. And then I ended up workshopping it at Loyola University oh, cool. in uh, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and then I had a workshop of it at a college in Oklahoma, Rogers State University. Mm-hmm. It connects really well with with young actors. Is it hard for you to? Hear them say your lines. Or is it just hard in general for any playwright to hear their own lines? You think? No, I get I get really excited to okay. hear my lines. Oh, very I, cool. I, yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm about to start rehearsals for Welcome McKean yeah. with Straw Dog in a in a couple of weeks, and I cannot wait to hear this play in the word in the mouths of the actors. Yeah, I, I ask because like when I do original play work sometimes when we have the play right there it's it's sometimes hard for them to hear the lines oh, yeah. or you know sometimes when we're doing like a couple one acts and we have the playwrights there they're they're cringing sometimes at themselves oh no i love it when i cringe i'm cringing at at like uh like wording that i chose yeah you know i love to hear actors of any level of ability um interpret the words because I love to hear how somebody what their instinct tells them to do yeah. with it. Uh, and when it's, when it sounds wonky, 
I feel responsible myself for it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that actor sucks. Yeah. You know? Or they're ruining my work. Oh, yeah. I feel like I'm ruining it. Mm-hmm. You know? Do you forget sometimes that it's your own work when you just watch the show itself? I haven't gotten there yet. No? No. Do you th- what do you think is going to happen when you sit there opening night? I mean, it might happen with Welcome to Keen. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it's going to have, like, 20 performances or something. So, uh, and it's, you know, a local company doing it. So I will be very present through the entire process. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see if I get there <laughs> emotionally. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, so, uh, so now you're in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, is this when you become, is this when you found Jellica? Or? Yeah. So I moved, so I moved to Chicago, uh, unemployed okay. or, or severely underemployed, uh, because I was, I've been teaching, Online for Southern New Hampshire University, oh, cool. which is a job that I can take with me wherever I go. Yeah, but it's like one class a term, and it's not a lot of money. Um, but I needed a full time job, and I moved to Chicago and was here for a good six months without a full time job. And when I found the job at Morton College at the Jedlica, mm-hmm. and what was the Jedlica like at that state when you joined? Uh, confused, really? Yeah, yeah. I remember. Uh, I, the job I thought I was getting into was, uh, it felt like facilities and production management Mm. that sort of, and, and the, the process of getting the job and going through the, um, interviews and all that, that's kind of what it, it felt like on my first day, uh, Samantha, who was my assistant at the time, uh, told me that I need to program the seat, the upcoming season. And I was like, programming? Like, I'm picking the plays. So this job is actually artistic director. Like, yeah. like that's what the artistic director does. And she, and she was like, yeah, dummy. That's, that's the role. And it was like, it was shocking to me because I was like, that's not the role I thought I was getting into. Yeah. So that's why I say the job was very confused. And the, and the theater itself um, was uh, just very in a, in a weird and precarious place. Uh, it was run by somebody for like 30 or 40 years Mm -hmm. and that person sort of ran it like it was their pet project and and then they were moved out of that role and then it had like for a couple years in between leadership and nobody was really in charge for a while and Mm -hmm. um, as I understand the history um and and it looked that way like there was just stuff collected everywhere nothing ever got thrown out there was very little organization to it so uh, I came in and that's, that's like, I'm really good at organization. And, yeah. and, uh, so I, I planned a season super fast and I just hustled to bring some organization to the place. And how do you, so, cause you did last five years. Yeah. Uh, red bike. Yeah. Amish project. And then you were to see, which is how I met you. Right. Right. And Lexi for our listeners. Right. Um, how did you program that for your first time? Yeah. yeah. That's a great question. I, I, I had, about two weeks to do this. I didn't know any directors, and I am not a director myself, and I don't aspire to, to be one. Um, so I needed to pick theater. I need to pick. I needed to pick plays and pick people to actually do them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was new to the city as well, so I was like, "Holy shit, what am I going <laughs> to do?" Um, I quickly looked at the at the history of the theater, what they had done over the going back, you know, forty years or so, and I noticed there was a very very long history of. Um, plays by white men, yeah, uh, and plays that were very broadly appealing, like murder mysteries and farces, mm-hmm. and uh, and I looked at the student body of the college, 
Morton College where this theater resided, and it is 85 to 90% Latinx. Mm -hmm. And the majority of that population is Mexican. Mm -hmm. And then the geographic population, very deeply Mexican, Latinx. And, um, and, and so there are so many people of color. Why is this theater not doing that? Yeah. Then I also thought about the style of the work. The, the regular theater-going audience at that time um, was very old uh, and white. And so I was like, how do I sort of like connect these two? Um, how do I honor the, the, the resilience of this audience that keeps coming back, but also sort of like move it forward into a future and create theater that might be more appealing to younger people and mm -hmm. to people of color? Um, so... I thought about a musical that was broadly appealing, but also would show them a different flavor of musical, not yeah. as straightforward, and uh, but also very relatively easy to do, which is the last five years. And I chose Red Bike because I said, we're going to do a play with students. Yeah, um, The theater had not done any theater with students before, at least not in the recent history that I could, I could find out. So I said, so we're going to engage students and we're going to do a play with students chose Red Bike because I know the playwright uh, Caridad's Fitch and uh, I have a lot of respect for her and her work in this play um, was, was was like poetry on the page and it's like a blank slate from a directorial point of view mm -hmm. uh, so I know that you can, you can also do the play with one, two, three, or four actors oh, very cool. so I was said okay great if we can only get a couple actors, student actors to do it then we'll do it with two mm -hmm. yeah. if we can get four then we'll do four <laughs> we ended up with three um and then uh, the Amish Project came about because I, I met Lita Hoffman, who's now the artistic director at Straw Dog, and um, we just kept talking about uh, what, what play we could do together. And she pitched the Amish Project, and I read it, and it was a solo play. And I was like, that from a, as the producer, mm -hmm. I'm very excited about That's doing cool. a solo play that will make <laughs> like fewer moving parts. And then I knew Eurydice, which we did at the, at the end of the season, I knew Eurydice was the first one I knew because it is it's a beautiful play. Mm -hmm. It is unbelievably accessible to a broad audience, but it's also not a straightforward narrative piece. So it will show this this traditional theater going audience another flavor of theater. Yeah. So it would move them along. And I also knew that students would be engaged with it. And it's not very long, no. which helps with the younger audience quite a bit. Uh, so that's how, and I did all of this very, very quickly. That's very good <laughs> um, on you. But what I knew all along was I need to do In the Heights. Yeah. That was that was the one. Yeah, I immediately was like, In the Heights is the production I need to do. In the Heights is humongous, mm -hmm. and I can't do it, but I'm going to keep coming back to it until I can do it. And and I was so fortunate that the very next production uh, after Eurydice, I was able to do in the Heights because I found a co-producer in the community with Vision Latino mm -hmm. and uh, and and I was like this is the this is the production that bridges all of the gaps mm -hmm. it it shows the student body and the geographic population around the school um, themselves on stage and yeah. and stories that they can connect with but it's also a, a wonderful amazing musical that anybody can for sure. can, can enjoy for sure yeah and um, so your time at Jellica was quite short, if would you think? Yeah, it was about two years. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you remember? What if you had to describe your time there? How would you describe it? And how would you 
what would you like to see them going forward be like? It was the most challenging professional experience in my life. Yeah. It was it was the best job I could have and simultaneously the worst work experience that I could possibly have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned I learned more about myself and my capabilities than I ever imagined because I was doing everything from programming a season and hiring a staff and interviewing directors and reading plays mm-hmm. to um, hanging and focusing lights and painting the floor and striking sets. And uh, yeah, that set for you to see was not easy, right? And then and then that's like cleaning a shop and and creating a sense of organization to the proper room. Like I was do, I was so hands on uh, in every aspect of that job. It, it in ways that I never was in my previous lives. Like I spent most of my theater professional life um, outside of being a playwright as an administrator. Like I was doing marketing and yeah. I was in the office all the time. But the greatest. The thing I'm taking away the most, uh, which connects to the last part of your question, was the students. Mm-hmm. It took a very long time to start to develop relationships with the students because there was, the, there was no natural bridge between the student body and the theater. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, I had to build it myself, and that took two years to do it. So I wrote a mission statement for the, for the company mm-hmm. because the company didn't have a mission statement. And I believe in mission, and I believe in following your mission and using your mission as uh, your measuring stick for what you should, be, you should be doing. Whenever you choose to do something, the first question you should ask is, is this on mission, right? And so I wrote a mission that said uh, this theater will do work that is socially and culturally relevant to the communities of the school and the uh, people that's, that live in the surrounding community. Mm-hmm. And so everything I did, did it, it had to fit that mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we do have some time. We're going to do a quick talk about Subtext, your podcast. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. This is now, your, this, you started this, right? You, this started from scratch from you, right? Oh, yeah. When I, this was back in Los Angeles. Uh, this was just L.A. focused, mm-hmm. uh, this podcast, for about two years. And it was, it was run by L.A. Stage Alliance, which is like the, the League of Chicago Theaters mm-hmm. of Los Angeles, just to give you a yeah. comparison. Um, they hired me to do um, something. They, wanted, they, they were launching a new online magazine, and they asked me to do something focusing on playwrights. So the editor of this new online magazine, her name was Danny Oliver, uh, reached out to me and said, will you do something? And I said, I would love to, but I don't want to do anything written. Like, I don't want to do, like, a, a written interview or that kind of thing. I want to do something else because I'm not really good in that department. Yeah. And Danny said, what about a podcast? And I said, that's awesome. Let's do a podcast. So uh, she and I uh, came up with the title, uh, and this is probably the, the subtext. It's probably, like, the 20th title <laughs> that was pitched. Um and then she created the logo, and together we sort of created a structure for how this this podcast would work. And I would be lying if I didn't say that I I stole from uh, Mark Marin, yeah, WTF, and in the whereas he's funny and he can in his style of comedy is he can riff. So the opening of every episode for him is him riffing for a good yeah, yeah, ten yeah. or fifteen minutes about what's going on in his life. Yeah. Then he gets into his hour-plus conversation. Um, my version of that is a, I open on it with a, uh, a cold open on a scripted yeah. story or monologue of some sort. And then I segue into the interview. 
Uh, and I know some people don't like to say they had favorite guests, but I'm going to assume like a memorable guest for you was probably Paula Vogel. Oh, Paula Vogel was amazing. But I should say that. I, so I did this in Los Angeles yeah, for two years. Ahead, sorry. I did this for, in L.A. for two years. Uh, Danny left the organization to go to grad school. I left Los Angeles to come to Chicago, and I thought the podcast was dead. Mm-hmm. But I missed it. And, uh, and I learned uh, that it's actually my intellectual property and that I could continue it if I wanted to. Yeah. So I pitched it to American Theater Magazine, which is you know the, like one of the only theater magazines in the country and a nationally recognized brand. And uh, I pitched it to them, and they actually listened to the podcast. Really? So they said, sure, we'd love to take it on. Oh, so American so cool. Theater Magazine took it on into their stable of podcasts. And because of that... It has given me so much more access to playwrights because I now have a brand that um, I can say I can contact a PR person or a marketing person at a theater and say I'm from American Theater Magazine. <laughs> I'd like to interview playwright X. Um, but yeah, uh, I would say there there have been a lot of favorites. Paula was uh, one of the most exper- wonderful experiences of my life. Like. Uh, I had met her before this mm-hmm. in a group, so yeah. not really one-on-one, but I had the briefest one-on-one moment with her in that group. And she is a powerful, powerful person yeah. uh, in, in, in that she's got such great command over um, her empathy. So she can connect with you immediately and so powerfully and wonderfully. And like you... She is who she is, and like she's this amazing icon of theater. But in that moment, that doesn't matter. Like you matter to her in that moment, and so getting getting her for an hour, hour plus, just one on one for the subtext was amazing. Yeah, it was so inspiring. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so we are running low on time. Right, right, uh, right. We're gonna do a game, and I have two questions for you after. Okay. Uh, this game is usually called Time for Two, but okay. since it's just me today, yeah. we're going to do it uh, Uno, no, I don't have a title, uh, <laughs> because I am not professional. So we're going to do uh, two minutes on the clock of random uh, icebreaker questions. Okay, okay. Uh, are you Bring ready? It. Yeah. All right, hold on for the clock. All right, three, two, one, go. Are you good at cooking? Yes. Weather of choice? Oh, summer. <laughs> Candy of choice? Anything chocolate. What did you have for breakfast? Uh, English muffin. Netflix or Hulu? Netflix. Uh, left Twix or right Twix? Oh. oh. <laughs> Break them both, smash them into a bowl, and eat them with a spoon. There we go. Do you believe in ghosts? No. What would you do for a Klondike bar? <laughs> <laughs> Answer two minutes of fast-paced questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you had to choose an emoji that describes your life, what would it be? Oh, the emoji with the straight line smile, or lack no smile. <laughs> For our listeners, Brian just did the face. Uh, do you collect anything? <laughs> Unproduced plays. <laughs> there we go. Uh, favorite vacation you've been on? Oh, Iceland. Uh, have you kicked down a door? No. Do you know how to tie a bow tie? No. Do you make your bed every day? No. <laughs> uh, boxing or wrestling? Oh, I like to put them both in a bowl with, a, with, with the right and left Twix and smash them up. <laughs> uh, CVS or Walgreens? Oh, CVS just for the receipts. Do you describe your, uh, describe your life using an ice cream flavor? 
<laughs> Vanilla. <laughs> there we go. Uh, AC or DC? AC, DC. Come oh, on, Thunderstruck. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mac or cheese? Oh, cheese. Describe your life. Bugs Life or Toy Story? I don't know Bugs Life, so let's say Bugs Life. Oh, there we go. Do you have a favorite ABBA song? No, I do not. Uh, are you a listener or a talker? I'm a talker. All right. Do you hit the treadmill or hit the couch? Couch. Uh, uh, favorite pizza topping? Oh, oh, cheese. Stairs or elevators? Stairs. There we go. <laughs> Ooh, it gets gets a little intense after a yeah, while. That's great. Uh, so as we wrap up, do you have any um, last minute advice for playwrights or just artists in general? You think? Yeah, uh, what I didn't know when I started off was that there is no path to success. Mm-hmm. And that the, the word success is a kind of a slippery thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are a million ways to do what we're doing. And it's probably individually based. So just keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. And, and success is however you define it. Nice. Well, Brian, for the final question of the day, uh, are your parents proud of you? <laughs> yes, I think they are. There we I think go. They are. Yeah. There we go. Well, Brian, thank you so much for doing this. I very appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Well, thank you, Brian, for spending some time with me. If you want to see his show, Welcome to Keene, New Hampshire, here is your chance. It plays April 17th to May 30th this year, 2020, at Philmont Theater, that is 4041 North Milwaukee Avenue, is being produced by Straw Dog Theater. Tickets are on sale now. Just go to strawdog.org. And that is it for today. Remember, this episode would not be done without our professional national scuba diver, Griffin McCorgle. Griffin, we love you, buddy. Just keep swimming. And Connor, do you have anything you want to add? Connor. Connor. Well, this is awkward. Uh, Well, I guess that's it for today's episode, folks. Uh, Connor will come back eventually, but uh, until then, uh, my name is Matthew Schufreiter, and we will see you next time. Or I will see you next time. Who knows? All right. Bye. Bye.